Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 is where we'll begin reading. Our focal passage is going to be verses 5 through 11. Uh, but we're going to be studying a passage that is, is probably the clearest statement of the incarnation of Jesus both being truly man and truly God. Like he, He's both. And how that works and the mystery of all that, it, it, it has uh, confounded people. It, it's, it's beyond us, but it is... Uh, what the Bible demonstrates to us. And so we're in that passage today. But here's the thing. Paul does not write it to defend the doctrine or even to teach the doctrine. It's couched in a passage in which it sets the life of Christ in his divinity, taking on humanity as an example. Not that we're divine and we take on humanity, but there's an example for us to follow in it, and, and, and so that's what he does. So what we're going to strive to do is we have to understand the doctrine. We're, we have to know the doctrine. We have to agree with the doctrine. It's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, so, so we're going to seek to see the doctrine. I'm going to seek to make sure that we lay out the doctrine of the incarnation, but we're not going to stop there and say, oh, well, we all agree to this. Let's just move forward. We're then going to see that other side of it uh, and really seek to demonstrate the application of the doctrine. So here, here's the thing. If we, so, so Paul presents it. You'll see this. He writes it not to defend the doctrine or teach the doctrine, but he writes it in a way as if it's just agreed upon. Everybody knows it. Everybody agrees to it. It's not up for debate. There's not a discussion around it. He's not defending it in any way. Just states it as if it's what they believe because it's what they believe. But then he uses what they believe as an example to demonstrate the application he's already been calling them to. So if we miss the doctrine, then we're going to get the application wrong. But if we stop at the doctrine and we don't move to the application, we miss Paul's point altogether, right? So, so we're going to fight to, to see these two sides of it today as clearly and concisely as I know how to do. So hang on. <laughs> um, concise is not my, it's not my forte, uh, but I'm sure the Lord will, 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 will be fine. We're still going to have lunch at some point today. I know it. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Unless he returns. See, I'm not concise. Because all these thoughts, if he returns, who, who cares if we have lunch? We'll be sitting down at a feast. All right, let's keep going. All right, so, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. We're going to get some review. We're going to get the understanding of what Paul's calling the church to review because really coming out of what he's calling the church to, that's what he begins to teach, why he begins to teach the the. The, the, the doctrine or demonstrate the doctrine of the incarnation. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to read, get this back in our mind, and then push forward. So here we go. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conce- or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're going to stop right there. We're going to pray. We're going to ask for the Lord to be with us as we study and, and, uh, and seek to understand what this means for us today. Father, help us now. This is your word. You've inspired it. You led uh, by your spirit. You led Paul in the writing of it. And, and so I just pray that uh, you would work. 
And by your spirit today, that you would bring us understanding, lead us into truth, that we would be able to reflect that in, um, in our daily living in a very dark world um, in many ways that rejects you and is, and is rejecting you. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was the passage we studied last week. That was the, the verses that were the focal, the, 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 just the focal point of our study. Here's the main point that I brought from them that we laid out, and, and then we're going to walk through the outline, and we're going to do it quickly. I'm not going to give a lot of explanation. I would encourage you as you hear them, if you missed last week, I I want the words in your mind, I want the perspectives in your mind, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon to to really see explanation, and if there's questions that come from it, don't hesitate to talk with me and let me know, we'll we'll talk about it. Here's the main point, Here's, here's the perspective that I sought to bring from these verses. If we have been blessed by the gospel of Christ, then we are also responsible to humbly live in pursuit of unity in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if, if you have been blessed by the gospel in these ways, complete my joy, you're responsible to do something. Pursue Christian unity. That's what Paul is getting at. What is Christian unity? This is the way we defined it last week from these verses, verse 3 in particular, or verse 2 in particular, oneness rooted in minds, renewed by and set on the things of Christ, bound together by the love of Christ that reflects the life of Christ. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same mindset. Think the same way. Having the same love. The love that saved you, that, that Christ bestowed upon you as, as an object of his love, you have this love together. Be of in, in full accord. There's a the, the, the Greek word translated in full accord is this one soul, the, the idea of being one to the depths of who we are, this oneness that we have been, has been bestowed upon us. He's actually calling us to apply it, to practice it, to, to have this oneness that's rooted in minds, renewed by and set on the things of Christ, bound together by the love of Christ that reflects the life of Christ. So, so this is what it looks like. This, this is how we define Christian unity, or at least in light of this passage. Why pursue Christian unity? Because of the gospel. It is the very work that God is about doing in the gospel. He is uniting all things in heaven and earth. He is bringing things together. If you have been blessed by the gospel, then to not pursue Christian unity is to work in opposition to the gospel. If you're not pursuing Christian unity, if you're not living united with God's people then how in the world are you enjoying the fellowship of your Savior? Because he's determined or chosen to work in and through his people. So so, so because of the gospel, we pursue Christian unity. But more than that, Paul gives us a specific reason in this passage, complete my joy, for greater joy in the gospel. So Paul's already about, he's about to tell them, don't do things for yourself, don't do things selfishly. Paul's not being selfish. He's saying, look, there is joy to be had in Christian unity. I have greater reason to rejoice when you walk united, right? And he knows that for the good of these people, their joy will be found in walking together. So there is a way in which we, have, we, we are robbing ourselves of joy if we, as God's people, don't strive to walk as God's people. We're missing out on the joy of Christianity here on earth in some measure. So why pursue Christian unity? Because of the gospel, for greater joy in the gospel. 
How then do we strive for Christian unity? I need to make a comment here. Last week, Laura put the slides together. I sent her the slides. She put the slides together. And, and after I sent her the slides, I changed the wording on the slides. I changed the points. And so I heard things like, oh, well, you kind of rushed through that last stuff. You didn't even really hit your points. And then, and then I think some people were, I think it was Nathan up there last week. And some people, Nathan's like trying to follow me. And I'm saying different words and what's on the screen in front of him. And so the words are wrong behind me. So that was my fault. You're welcome to blame them all you want because I'd rather you blame them. No, I'm just kidding. That was my fault. But the, the, the three points that, that I brought out, out of this text and out of, uh, I, I think, ultimately, uh, well, should have been what I worded it to begin with. One, entrust yourself to the Lord. We don't see that expressly commanded, but we see it exemplified both in Paul's life leading up to this point he is in prison, and yet he still proclaims the gospel. He entrusts himself to the Lord. He is not shrinking back because he entrusts himself to the Lord. He is facing conflict from within the church because there's people preaching the gospel, preaching Christ for selfish ambition, self, for, for, to, to afflict him more in his imprisonment, and yet he's still rejoicing. He is entrusting himself to the Lord. But then we also see it in the passage we're going to study today in the life of Christ, who humbled himself and entrusted himself to the will of the Father, to the point that some of the last words he said on earth were, into your hands I commit my spirit. He hangs his head and dies. He entrusted himself completely, fully, 100% to the Lord. We see that exemplified. So how do we strive for Christian unity? Entrust yourself to the Lord. Humble service. And he specifically calls this out. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others more significant than yourself. Don't just think of your own needs, but consider what others need and their interests as well. Humbly serve one another. Humbly engage one another. Humbly walk alongside one another. And then ultimately, building back out of this whole idea of being blessed by the gospel. Do for one another what Jesus has done for you. If you have been blessed by the gospel, it isn't, as much as I love you, as much as I love being your pastor, it isn't because you deserve it. Right? It's by grace that we receive this. We don't get his blessing because we deserve or have earned his blessing. And so we shouldn't be waiting for everybody else to earn it. If we've been blessed, there should be no reason we aren't just as generous and just as... So, so even the prayer that Kara prayed, she read from a passage where Christ has served, and now he's calling his people to serve in the same way. So, so here's the idea. And here's what, here's, ultimately, I want you to have the idea of Christian unity in mind, but, but this last section. Most often, we seek to, to fight and pursue Christian unity by saying, let's be united. It doesn't work that way. We don't get unity just by saying, let's be united. Unity is the byproduct of the gospel work in us, in us entrusting ourselves to the Lord, walking humbly in service to him and his people, and doing for one another what he has done for us. That what unintentionally then happens is this unified way of living and perceiving and thinking about one another. He's changing our mind. He's renewing us from the inside out. We're practicing it. And unity is the byproduct. It's, it's kind of the fruit of all of that work. And so, so here's the thing. We can enjoy that unity. 
We can receive the blessings of that unity. Or we can be like these Christians that are causing him problem in, in, in prison and be doing everything out of selfish ambition, not only robbing ourselves of the joy of the gospel, robbing others of joy in the gospel. Right? This is the responsibility of every Christian, every person here. It's not Seth's job to make everybody unified. It's not the elder's job to make everybody unified. It's all of our jobs. This is all of our responsibilities. It belongs to every last one of us. And, and, and when we don't have Christian unity, it's because we have not humbled ourselves. We have not put on the mind of Christ, right? So <clears throat> I didn't say this last week. It's been in my mind. I thought to say it, and I didn't. But, but when you see the church dividing over things like politics and secondary tertiary issues, things that, that aren't the essential doctrines, and uh, when you see the church dividing over those issues. We, if we can't stand united in the season of COVID because the church asks for mass and then doesn't ask for mass. If, if, in fact, I heard of a number of church splits that occurred during COVID because there wasn't enforcement for shots. There wasn't it, just all this stuff. When we divide over public policy, it's because we were never united in Christ, Right? If we can't sit in the room with brothers and sisters who vote differently than we do, then it's because we were united politically but never in Christ, right? So set our personal perspectives, our personal desires, our, our self-interest, our self-exaltation, set it all down, entrust ourselves to the Lord, humble ourselves towards one another and Him, and do for each other what He has done for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right. Spent a little more time on that than I intended to because I'm not concise. Now we need to keep going, picking it back up in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture ever written. I, so powerful. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here, Paul is calling the church to, to live worthy of the gospel. This is the, the whole context of the passage, live worthy of the gospel. One aspect of living worthy of the gospel is, is living in union with other brothers and sisters in Christ, striving after a united Christian life. So he calls us to, 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 to bestow that on one another, to be the people who fight for that, to pursue that. And then he gives us the supreme example in it happening. Jesus. Now, normally, I would tell you, playing the comparison game is a dangerous game, right? Because here's what we tend to do, is we set the standard based on what we think is right and good in the world, and who's in charge of that, 
me, self. And, and if I don't have enough according to the standard I have set and I compare myself to someone who has more, what do I tend towards? Envy, right? If I have more than what someone else has, what can I tend towards? Well, I did something right. God loves me more. He's blessed me more, right? This person must be, God must be angry with them or something. So, I'm not saying it always works. I'm just saying how it works out often and how I've worked with people through different things. So, so in, the, in, the, in the stuff that we have or, the, or the, uh, the things that we achieve in this life, if we compare ourselves in that way and we're the standard, we're setting the standard, well, that's, that's a dangerous game to play. It automatically divides us because nobody lives up to our standard as well as we do. Well, maybe we don't live up to him either, if we're honest. But in the spiritual sense, in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a sense of, I, I am not as good as that person in their spiritual walk. They appear more righteous, more holy than I do. And that standard set high. And, and, and here's the thing, the Bible sets the standard. The standard is perfection, Right? And you look at these people who, ha- who seemingly have it all together, who have all the, man, their life just, oh, it just reflects Christ. Why am I not like that? Why am I still struggling with this stuff? That sense of hopelessness. And again, maybe envy and maybe, maybe desiring just to be like them for the sake of being like them so that now you can finally feel loved by God. Or we could be like the Pharisee who looks at the tax collector and says, well, <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for not making me like him. Comparisons, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a game we should be playing. <laughs> but the, Paul calls us to look at our lives in light of who Christ is and what he's done, and he sets, it out as, he sets him out as the standard and as the example because he is the perfect and pure example. He is the perfect standard. And what he's done for us while we are going to struggle in doing it as well, the intention is we still strive to live and, and, and be willing to die as he lived and died. Jesus is our Savior. We don't want to dismiss this. We don't want to diminish this. In any way, he is our Savior. It is by God's grace and through faith in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. That we have what we have. We're going to celebrate it at the end of this service. We do every week. We remember that we are who we are. And we are able to do what we do because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We root every one of our our gathered corporate services in this truth. His perfect life represented by the bread. His, His sacrificial death represented by the blood. But the resurrection, the victorious resurrection, had it not been true, there'd be no reason for us to continue to remember it today. He died in our place. His substitutionary atonement. He died in our place for our sins so that we could stand in his place and receive the inheritance that he was due. He didn't, some, some of the, you, you, you know some of the cliches, he didn't die to make, make, make good people bad, he died to save the sinner, right? Like we all are, are, are bad people good. He didn't die to make bad people good. Sorry, I just caught that I said that backwards. He didn't die to make bad people good, he, he died to make dead people live, right? So, so 
He, he, he is that. We don't want to diminish that. We don't, want to, we don't want to remove that. We don't want to miss that as we approach these scriptures. Jesus is our Lord. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has authority. He has every right to command us and us obey. We don't want to diminish that in any way. We don't want to lose sight of that in any way. His authority is complete. And even those who do not recognize him as Lord, one day will bow before him as their Lord. They will answer to his authority. He doesn't need their permission, nor does he need ours. He has been given this authority. It's been bestowed upon him by his Father. He is the head of the church. We don't want to diminish that. We don't want to dismiss that. So as we talk about this and think about it in terms of how Paul's laying it out, we're not neglecting that these other things are true. But as Paul lays it out, we cannot dismiss that Jesus is also our supreme example. And while it's not right and safe and good for us to sit and compare ourselves to one another and try to make ourselves feel bad or live under the weight of hopelessness that comes from that, there's a reality that we, he is the standard. He sets the example. By the working of the Holy Spirit, we are all being conformed to his likeness. God is at work in us, starting, and the work that he started, he is going to complete. But he is, this is the likeness that he's making us into. This is the likeness that we are commanded to pursue, the, the, the reflection uh, that, that we're, or the, the image we are to reflect. He is our supreme example. And that is why, exactly why Paul does what he does in these verses. He's not writing this to defend to the church that Jesus Christ is Lord or that he is the substitutionary atonement. He's writing these verses so that people who are already convinced of that truth know that it matters if we're going to be able to live together in Christian union. This is the, 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 the life we're to put on. This is the the way we're to practice it. In his supreme demonstration of humility, in his supreme demonstration of humility, Jesus set the example for his people to entrust themselves to the Lord and humbly serve one another to the glory of God. In his supreme demonstration of humility, Jesus set the example for his people to entrust themselves to the Lord and humbly serve one another to the glory of God. The Incarnation. Jesus is God, is man. Essential Christian doctrine. We're not walking away from that. We're not dismissing that. We're going to seek to understand it. It's a non-negotiable. We have to understand it. In some, in in more theological circles, and some of you will appreciate this because you you, you want the terminology, it's called the hypostatic union where, where Jesus is both completely God and completely man, diminishing uh, neither neither d- diminishing the other, somehow united as one. Uh, it, th- that has been the debate of theologians for years. We cannot, we, we cannot walk away that somehow that works in the eternality of who God is and Him taking on this nature. I don't know how, how you define it exactly. I don't know. But people have been def- defining it, arguing over it, sometimes dividing over it. We do not want to dismiss it, right? Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. That, that's, that's the doctrine. For him to take on this, this likeness of mankind, 
He had to humble himself. And this is the way Paul describes this. In humility, Jesus emptied himself. Look at it. You can see it in verse 6. Have this mind among yourselves. I'm sorry, that's verse 5. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But emptied himself. He was equal with God. He, he was God. He was in the form of God. The idea of being in the form is, is having the nature. It's, it, it's, he, he is God. He didn't cling to that identity. He didn't use that, he didn't use that uh, position of privilege and power and authority as a reason not to do something. He, he, he's, he willingly empties himself. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot, of, a lot of disagreement about this, a lot, a lot of debating and discussing over this, and some would go so far as to say, suggest that in the idea of emptying himself, he actually divests himself of any, uh, any divine nature. And so literally he ceases to be God in his humanity. But, but I, I, well, and I don't agree with that. I think it's wrong. I don't think it's an accurate view. I think it, it, it's, it's a statement against what this is saying. But I think understanding the word emptied might help. And, and, and so here's, here's just a couple of quotes from a couple of folks. I don't have them on the screen, uh, but, but I can give them to you later if it would if be helpful. But really to spur you on to think about this word. The word translated empty, emptied, is kenoo does not mean the Son of God emptied himself of his deity in some kind of theological subtraction. Emptied means divesture of position or prestige. And so it's not that he ceased to be God, but in a sense he stepped down out of heaven. He stepped out of position of glory to take on some other position. Uh, J. Uh, Alec Maltier is a guy I've been reading from, and, and his, his devotion, or his... Uh, his commentary is more pastoral-leaning, a uh, little less technical, but he, but he makes a good point here. He, he says, it is, a hel- it is helpful to note, in the first place, the fact that the verb to empty in every other New Testament instance means to deprive something of its proper place and use. So rather than ceasing to be God, he deprived himself of all of the position and prestige of being God. He set them aside for a time, in a sense, although he maintained his identity and, and his, uh, well, his Godhead. Historically, the church has taken this position. So this isn't just common people or, or modern people saying things, modern things about the, 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 the incarnation. John Calvin writes, Christ Indeed, these quotes aren't on the screen, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, but not by lessening it, it always was the same, but by concealing it. So it's hidden, it's, it's veiled, if you will, so, so in, in similar fashion to the, to, the, to the bride who walks down the aisle and her face is veiled, Right? Um, going further back in history, Augustine writes, he emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. Now, and, and, and the form of that is exactly what follows, right? So not counting equality with God, he didn't use his position as a reason to not do anything. He didn't use what he deserved in, in, in light of who he was as a reason to, to stay where he was he set those things aside. Why? 
to take the form of a servant. So if we just follow the pathway through, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He, 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 he hid or veiled his divinity, his glory, by taking the form of a servant. It wasn't what he quit being or quit doing as much as what he began doing, right? He took the form of a servant. He took to himself what he was not. He concealed it in service because when Jesus came, he did not run and take a throne, did he? You think about this. He is equal with God. He is in the form of God. He deserves worship. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. John tells us in his gospel that he was in the beginning with God and was God. Paul tells us that by him and for him, everything was created. He is clearly worthy of our worship and and was so before the incarnation. This clearly sets that out as well. He was in the form of God. He was God. He held that very nature, but he didn't come in power and grab power. He didn't walk into Caesar's throne room. I don't know what that would have been called. He didn't walk into uh, uh, Herod's place of rule and say, get off the throne. Although he could have at any moment done it. Instead, he took, took the form of a servant. This in part is his own proclamation of why he came, Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to give his life in ransom for many. When Jesus returns, he'll return in glory, right? He's going to do that. He will come in glory, and people will recognize that glory. But it had to be this way first. Think about this. If he had come in glory the first time, ruling with a rod of iron, who would he have ruled? Everyone who was condemned. And without him coming first as a suffering savior, suffering servant, who would be condemned? All of us. This is God's plan. It had to be this way. It had to happen this way. He had to be our savior. And he had to serve in this role. He veiled his glory so that he could serve us in this way. So that he could bring to us salvation, not condemnation. This is right. It is the intent. It is the work that God is about doing. But he didn't do that from some theoretical sense, some earthly rule, like he's a spirit floating around as a servant. He's born in the likeness of men. This is the process. He steps out of heaven. He, steps, he, he, he takes on this, 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 this form, this nature of a servant, born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh like every other man. He was born as an infant, grew through being a toddler, into childhood and adolescence, ultimately to adulthood. And in every step of the way, every, every record of his existence, he is devoted to his heavenly father. When they find him in the temple, and they're, they're so worried, so afraid, the parents are so worried, so afraid. Well, why, why did you run off? Why did you do this? Didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? How many parents, like uh, as Christians, how many of us as parents wouldn't just be thrilled that that's, our, our kids are so devoted that at a very young age, they're sitting down schooling the rabbis. I mean, I think we'd all be like, ooh, look at my kid, you know. <laughs> that from, the very, from, from the very moment 
He's born to the very moment he dies. And this is the next point. He, he, he empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. He takes on, uh, he, he, he's born in the likeness of men. And he obeyed to the point of death. Now here's the question. Who did Jesus obey? Who did Jesus conform his life to? It wasn't men. Although he might have obeyed men at different times. It was his father. He was always subservient, always submissive to the will of his father. There are clearly times when it looks like on, on the surface that it was men. But he came to do his father's will. And so, so, it, so you just think about this. When, when Jesus is tempted in the, in the wilderness by Satan, who did he serve? Himself or his father? His father. When, when Jesus is sitting in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, Don't you know? Don't you understand? I have the authority to give you life or to give you death. Who was Jesus submissive to? His father. You don't, you don't have power over me except that it's given to you from above. When he's wrestling in the garden and he's weighted with the reality of what's about to happen, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night, night, night he's arrested, and he is praying to his father, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, may it be so. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the only, as far as I know, and I could be mistaken here because I don't know the Bible uh, by heart, but so far as I know, that's the only indication of any interaction or discussion over a different opportunity than the cross between the Father and the Son. And when he gets up from that moment and he leaves that place and they come to arrest him, is he obedient to the men in the garden who are there to arrest him or to his Father? To his father. And we know he obeyed. Not because death had its way or that he submitted himself to death. He obeyed his father to the point that he died in obedience to his father. Death was not his master. We will all die. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. There's all kind of people out there trying to stop it. Whole professions given to the lengthening of and betterment of life. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just suggesting much of, much of what we do in the medical field is to control when we live and when we die. But Jesus didn't obey death. Jesus obeyed his father to the point of death. It's a beautiful picture of his humility. The whole thing put together. The greatest and most supreme example of humility. Jason Meyer, in his commentary, he, he writes, Only the greatest humility, the lowest mindset, could willingly accept the lowest place possible. He was not too proud to wear our skin or bear our sin. This is so, so beautiful. One of the reasons this passage of Scripture strikes me so much is not simply the doctrine it presents, but the, but the Savior that it presents. Because he humbled himself to the point of death. And, and then Paul makes the claim, or makes the statement, even death on a cross. He didn't just die. He died the death of a criminal. He died a death that was purposefully co- co- uh, carried out to bring humiliation upon the person hanging there. 
The intent was to demonstrate the power that one person had over, or a government had over these people. It was to put them in their place and to show all other people, don't mess with us or you will get the same. It was insulting and humiliating. And our Savior hung there for us, hung between us and God. He obeyed his Father to the point of death. And not once, not once do we hear him say, this is not what I deserve. Jesus wasn't conquered, he obeyed. And from this humility, it's so beautiful, from his humility, Jesus was exalted by God. See, instead of running after self-exaltation, instead of making it all about him, instead of doing everything to protect his own interests and not be insulted and not be humiliated, he gave himself to it in obedience to the Father. And what did the Father do in response? Exaltation. He was exalted by God. Here's, and here's this, this, uh, something I was thinking of as I was talking about, uh, I was talking with Amy, uh, I think it was the week before last, about just how, how Moses isn't allowed into the, uh, he doesn't get to go to the promised land. I, so you just think about this, uh, the different, different heads of covenants and things in the Bible. Adam removed from the garden. Moses led the people <laughs> out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the very precipice of entering the promised land, and he doesn't get to go in. But here's Jesus, exalted, now sitting on a throne. He has done what no other human leader has ever done. And because he humbles himself this way, he's exalted by God. And from humility, Jesus will be worshipped as God. Every knee will eventually bow. Every tongue will confess. Not just those on the earth, but those beneath the earth. The living and the dead. At some point, everyone is going to know the glory of Jesus Christ. And he will receive the worship. Though he set it aside at one time. Though he veiled it in his humanity. There will come a time, a right time, in which everyone will see him for who he is. And he will be worshipped. He is our Savior and our God. He is our Savior and our Lord. (laughs) This is who He is. (laughs) And in the whole thing, though He was exalted, though He will be worshipped, Paul doesn't diminish one aspect of this whole thing. It's all to the glory of God the Father. Even in his glory, Jesus isn't seeking the glory of the Father. He's not seeking to rob. He's not seeking to compete. Not seeking to steal. Not seeking. Not 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 seeking to not see. God is going to be glorified. He will bring glory to God, the Father. Now we often solely focus on the cross. A lot of our songs focus on the cross, symbols and. Language focuses on the Christ. It's right to keep that in front of us. But if his humiliation is where it stopped, it would be empty. If his humiliation was the end, and it's separated from his exaltation, then we might as well go home right now. 
The incarnation doesn't end at the humility of Jesus. It's followed immediately by the exaltation of Jesus. It's right good for us to remember the cross, but we remember it empty. We remember that it's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that had to happen. We remember that it is necessary, but that's not where Jesus re- resides. He is seated, seated, because his work is finished. He is seated in the heavenly realms, the author of Hebrews tells us. He is waiting on his return for the Father to send him for the day that the Father knows. He longs to come and get his people and bring them to be with him, but that couldn't happen had the exaltation not happened. So, 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 so we get a picture of this doctrine, right? That, that, that he has humbled himself and in humility he empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of man and he's obeyed to the point of death. And he dies on that cross. And as a result, in his incarnated form, he is exalted. So when we meet Jesus in glory, he will be in front of us, I believe, as a man. We will see him in his flesh. And how that's going to work out, I guess we'll all get to find out. Any of us that know him and follow him, we'll get to find out. He will return in bodily form to come and get his people, to be with him forever, to make all things new. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He will conquer and he will rule. So that's the doctrine. Now, in many ways, I know because of who we are as people, you're already thinking through, well, wait a minute, that means this for my life. Because we know this isn't just about the doctrine, it's the example. So we don't have to spend quite as much time doing it, but it needs to be done. What is that example? Jesus' humility sets an example for us to humble ourselves. I've wrestled with this over the last few weeks, and, I, and, and I've been trying to figure out why. And as I, was always, as I was working through my outline and thinking through this, I think this is the reason. I, when do we quit? I, and I'm talking even as mature believers. I shared with you last week, last Sunday, I talked to you, I, I shared right from this place. There's moments where I'm all about the glory. I long for the glory of God. There's a part of me that I can tell you with all sincerity I want him to be glorified. I don't want your pat on the back. I don't need your affirmation. I am not looking for you to glorify me. There is a part of me that that is in the heart of hearts, in the depths of who I am. That is absolutely true. But there is a person living within me that's really loud. That even as I say that, saying, no, don't, 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 don't go too far. Because somebody might not pat you on the back later. And I want, to see that, I want to see that dude dead. I want to see him crushed. But even as a mature believer and a maturing believer, when have we ever quit trying to play God? When have we ever really humbled ourselves to the point that we've entrusted everything about our lives to God? I'm not talking about being bumps on a log and not proactively, purposefully seeking to live in accordance with his will. We're going to get to that. I'm talking about no matter what the cost, no matter what comes, that instead of seeking what we think we deserve, instead of seeking to live in this identity that makes us feel good about who we are and whether God loves us or not, comparing ourselves to one another, is there a time, is there a way in which we could not humble ourselves further? Quit playing God. Now here's the beauty of it. These are the people, as, and, and I'm not talking to perfection. I want to say this carefully. 
this is what we've been called to. This is, a, this is a clear doctrine across the Scripture. It's not just exemplified here. It's stated directly in other places. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus himself says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I, I, I'm concerned, not just for our church, but just the general culture that, that American churches exist today, that we live in a world that we're always trying to exalt ourselves and unwilling to humble ourselves. And, and, and because we don't get exalted the place we want, because we can't exalt ourselves in that place, we discount the reality of what beautiful things God could do through a people who humble themselves before him who instead of trying to get their own way in everything, entrust themselves so much to him as God, the God who sent his son in humility, (laughs) that we discount and oftentimes don't believe he's going to exalt us to the place he intends for us to be. I I think we do this in decisions about jobs we take. I think we do this in decisions about where we live and what and I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn or, or cause unnecessary conviction or doubt about where you're at today. I just want us to be honest. I've, I'm afraid that the American church often blames God for doing things, blames, takes, uses God as, as an excuse to do what we want to do. I'm just saying, based on the Scripture, if you find that at work in yourself, If you don't, ignore me. If you do, repent. He will exalt the humble. In fact, if we live in pride and arrogance, we're actually working against him where he stands opposed to that. Jesus died for that kind of arrogance and pride. Now, I need to limit this. I need to, because... If we take this wrong, you, you could unintentionally begin to think, well, oh, man, I'm going to be exalted like Jesus. I'm going to humble myself as a servant. Pretty soon people are going to be worshiping me. That sounds pretty good. I like that. No. <laughs> you are not, not, number one, you're not going to have to humble yourself to, to the degree that Jesus had to humble himself. You are not having to step out of heaven and veil your glory, right? You don't have it of, in, in and of yourself. Just... We don't deserve his salvation because we are fallen and we do not measure up to his glory. We are not what we were created to be. We fell. And though we bear his image, it is marred. So we're not going to be exalted to be worshipped, one, because we never deserved it to begin with. But in his exaltation of his people, he will exalt us to a right standing before him where we are equal with one another. Where we have different roles, we have different gifts, we have different abilities and di- diverse ways in which we come at things and diverse gifts to accomplish things and, 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 and diverse uh, uh, expressions of, of um, magnifying him and making much of him. But we will be equal before him. The ground is level. So that we can then finally worship him instead of self. The next thing that Jesus' example sets for us is his humility sets the example to serve one another selflessly. Going back to what led Paul to this line of thinking, do nothing 
from selfish ambition. Consider the interests of others. Consider others more significant than self. And maybe, maybe you didn't see yourself in that last comment, but, but I'm guessing every one of us struggles not to prioritize our own. Got to get mine. Got to take care of me. And if I don't take care of me, who's taking care of me? I want to achieve this station of life, and then I'll begin to do the things that God's called me to. Who's God in that? Who's the priority in that way of thinking? Serve one another selflessly. Give up ourselves for the good, for the benefit, for the blessing. We have, there's passage, Ephesians, I refer to it all the time. Give every spiritual blessing, like the whole realm of spiritual blessings is ours in Christ Jesus. Peter tells us we've been given everything we need. Not just a little bit of it. He's not just dribbling out. Everything we need for life and godliness. God has not left us in a place of want. or, Or let me say that differently. In the truest sense of who God is and what he's doing in our lives, he, have not, he has not left us in a place of want or need. That does not mean we don't have wants, because who doesn't have something they want? But the ambition that moves us doesn't have to be about us anymore. It doesn't have to be about furthering our own mission anymore. Paul's going to Paul's going to build this out even further. He is pouring himself out to the glory of God and the good of God's people. And, 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 and he just longs to know that the, he, he wants to see that fruit. He wants to rejoice in the fact that God is at work. He's serving them selflessly as Christ has served him selflessly. And he is calling us to serve one another selflessly the way Christ has served us selflessly. And I asked you to think about this last week. I mean, if, if only one or two of this, well, if, if only one or two of us decide to live this way, then that's exhausting for those one or two. Let's say 50% of us decide to do that in this church. Now, there's a lot of people missing today, but hopefully they'll listen and hopefully they'll get this. Let's just, let's say 50% of the people in this church take this on and begin to live this way. How different a place would this be? How bright would that light shine in the midst of a very religious city? That would be the attraction then to live among God's people and be God's people. We wouldn't have to worry about, oh, we don't have the big lights and the flashy, flashy stuff. We don't have a, a big concert going on. And I'm, I'm not trying to speak ill of that. I'm just don't, don't misunderstand. But the attraction would be the glory of God among God's people. And people would flock, people would be enthralled by that. People would be transformed by that. It's not about growing this church. It's about magnifying the glory of God. Let's keep going to live obediently to God. So Jesus sets the example to, to humble ourselves, to serve one another selflessly, to live obediently to God. All of us don't have to be martyrs. It's not what he's calling us to. It's not every one of us is required of that. But we are called to die to ourselves. We are called to pick up our cross and follow him regardless of the cost. If the scripture says it, rather than trying to, oh, well, you know, that's kind of old stuff, and we kind of, we would interpret it a little differently today. If, if it calls it sin, it's sin. 
If it doesn't call it sin, then, then there's space for discussion and even disagreement. If the Scripture says it, we conform to it. And where the Scripture is silent, again, we might debate, we might discuss, but we don't divide. And we live in obedience to God because He is the authority over us. It might appear at times we submit to the authority of man, but we submit to the authority of man, mankind, because we're seeking to live in obedience to God. So live in obedience to Him and to live. The, the, the final example, which, which is all building to, is to live for the glory of God. If we don't humble ourselves, whose glory are we going to be living for? Ours. If we don't serve one another selflessly, it's because we're living for what? We're not living for the glory of God, the good of His people. We're living for self. If we don't live in obedience to God, who's God? Self. All of this. To, to live for the glory of God. And here's the thing. Everybody's life is going to glorify God. Everybody's life. God will be glorified. It's intrinsic to his nature. He cannot not. He, can, he, has to, he must be glorious. He cannot not be glorified. He will be glorified in the just and righteous condemnation of those who reject his offer of salvation through Jesus. It's not something we talk about a lot, not something we go promote. It's certainly not something we advertise with, but it is absolutely true. And he will be glorified. He would be just as glorified in that as he is in those that, that he saves through, through, the, through the humility of his son. But here, right now, as his people, we have the opportunity to actually choose to live to his glory to humble ourselves, to serve one another selflessly, to live obediently to Him so that God gets the glory. So, have this mind that promotes and pursues Christian unity. Have this mind that's renewed by the gospel of Christ, set on the things of Christ, bound together by the love of Christ, and is one with the people of Christ. Have this mind that does nothing from selfish ambition, this mind that has received and extends the love of Christ in the church of Christ. Have this mind that doesn't seek to exalt oneself, but instead entrusts itself to the Lord, humbly serves others, lives obediently to God, to the glory of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, it's an application issue. It's not something you got to get. Apply it. Begin to do it. Let's pray. Father.